0: Church, if you'd open up 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, we will read verse 6 through verse 10. This is God's word. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but rather, train yourself for godliness. For bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so, living God... One God, three persons, our Father, our older brother, the Son, and the Spirit that You've given us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these commands from Your mouth that we have the privilege of studying today. Lord, we pray that You would work them into our lives. Into our lives into our priorities, into our schedules. Lord, change us by these things and make us more like Your Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've preached uh, this particular passage uh, a few times now and uh, going back a few years even. And uh, most of those times that we've studied this, we've really focused in on that word discipline. Discipline or uh, ESV has it translated train. And we've talked about the importance of spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. And um, next week I'll probably say a little bit more about that. But here's the problem with starting there. Uh, To just say, discipline yourself, discipline yourself, read more Bible, uh, come to church more faithfully, put to death your sin, uh, pray more, Right and just discipline, discipline, discipline. The problem with that is uh, it presupposes that you want what the discipline is supposed to be working you toward, which is godliness. It, it, it presupposes everybody that I'm speaking to right now wants godliness, and um, and I was thinking about this. What about those here who don't want godliness? At least not that strongly. Uh, what about those who aren't willing to put in the time and the effort and the self-denial uh, necessary to make progress in godliness? What about that person? Which might be many persons in this room. Um, because only if you want godliness, and, and, and I mean really want it, will you do the necessary discipline and training to attain it. Um, and, and I will say this, a little qualifier here. If you are a born-again uh, Christian, you desire godliness. Okay? The, the desire for godliness is in you. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life in godliness. And so I I do believe that if we have the Holy Spirit living in us, we want to be godly. There is a desire for that uh, in us. And those who don't have that desire for godliness and are content to live unrepentant in ungodliness aren't Christians. So every Christian has at least a, a small desire for godliness. But listen, If you have a small desire for godliness, there's your problem regarding discipline for godliness. The small desire is the problem. Um, If I have a a small desire to uh, get more healthy regarding my eating, I might uh, not get a Coke at dinner. I might uh, pass on dessert, but I'm not going to put my body through the rigors of someone who feels like their life depends on getting healthy and they're eating um I, I knew a man uh once he was probably in his upper upper sixties, and um just horrible eating uh patterns, tons of sugar, greasy foods uh fried foods, just junk food uh all this stuff you're not supposed to eat uh this man loved to eat and um because of his uh, because of his lifestyle, he had many heart problems and ended up uh in the hospital doing different heart surgeries and his family uh came to him pleading with him to eat healthier uh after these surgeries the doctor said something has to change uh your heart can't continue to endure this uh this diet and um and you, you, they all thought the doctor and the, the family thought uh things would get better after surgery after surgery and for a few weeks they did uh, and then back to old patterns and eating habits, and more surgeries. And they would sit and plead with him. Uh, began to even um, this family began to to ask him uh, if he wanted to live long enough to see his grandkids and and all of these things. Uh, just hoping something would would spark some change in the diet. And at one moment of honesty, uh, this man told his family. Uh, Here, at the end of the day, I just don't care about those extra few years of life that I might get. I just really want to eat what I want to eat. So leave me alone about the diet. And you may say about that person, uh, that's addiction. That's enslavement. But here's the point I'm trying to bring out. The stronger desire always wins. Always. And discipline always follows desire. Wherever the strongest desire is, you will discipline yourself for what you really want. And that's true for godliness. And disciplines for godliness. Uh, This is what Jonathan Edwards taught me uh, in his uh, book, Religious Affections. I I first read this little uh, section in it in 2007, and and it changed how I thought about these things. He says, we always do what we desire most. We always do what we desire most. I have found that to be profoundly true. That people do what they desire most. That discipline follows desire. Whatever you desire most, you will do and you will discipline yourself to keep doing. The desire The great desire for whatever that thing is will lead you to do that. And so this particular man, who couldn't uh, change his eating habits, revealed about himself, really I want whatever this food can provide more than whatever other benefits were being laid before him. And so take this back to yourself. I think it's fair to say everybody here isn't disciplining themselves for godliness to the standard we think maybe Scripture is calling us to, myself included. Um, Why? Why don't you wake up earlier? Why don't you read more? Why don't you pray more? Why don't you do all the things necessary? And I think you'd have to admit, if we're being honest, it's because our desire for godliness is very small. And it's not what it should be. Discipline is not the root problem; it never is. Uh, desire is always the root problem. Well, let me. Here's an illustration I'll give you. This, this uh, I think will make it abundantly clear. Let's say your boss comes to you tomorrow. You go to work, and he says, "All right, I'm going to lay something before you. This is going to be uh, this is going to change your career. This is going to be uh, a, a quite uh, an offer I'm going to put on the table. But right now, you currently make a hundred thousand dollars." If you, uh, I want to raise your salary to $300,000. But in order for that to happen, I'm going to give you one month to study this manual. And if you can pass a test at the end of this month on this manual, then we'll increase your, your salary and give you this uh, raise. I tell you, that man will walk out of that office, put aside anything else he's working on, and already begins studying. As soon as he gets home, he's going to say to his wife, Honey, you're not going to see me much this month. I'm going to be waking up early and going to bed late. I'm going to be doing everything necessary to pass this test and triple my salary. And what is the. Discipline is not the issue at that point. This is all about desire. And the discipline is following that increased desire. So the athlete kills himself with discipline. Why? Because he knows there's a payout coming. You know, the the Wall Street businessman eats, sleeps, drinks, Whatever uh, is necessary to, to do what he needs to do in order to get the payout. And so the reason disciplined people do what they do is they believe that the repetitious doing of whatever they're doing has a payout, has a reward that's coming for the discipline that it takes to get it. And I believe that's what Paul is explaining to Timothy And so, to the degree in which you value godliness, you will discipline yourself to attain it. And you say, well, what what disciplines are we talking about here? Well, in our passage, he talks about doing certain right things and not doing certain wrong things. Look at verse 6. He says, do put these things before the brothers. Do be trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you followed. Don't have anything to do with Irreverent, silly myths. Do teach and command these things. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth. Do set an example before believers. Don't neglect the gift that you have. You say, say, Pastor, life isn't about do's and don'ts. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Life is about do's and don'ts. Uh, do wake up in the morning, don't sleep all day, do brush your teeth, don't have bad hygiene, do go to work, don't quit your job and make your family suffer, do stop at the red light, don't stop at the green light, do be pure and holy, don't be unpure and unholy. And on and on and on, our whole life is is a, a long, drawn out, repetitious, ongoing pattern of do's and don'ts. And if that's true for our physical bodies, for our jobs, for all other areas of our life, is it not also true spiritually regarding godliness? And it is. It is. And so I have, I have two questions I want to ask and answer today. And I'll, I'll name them and then we'll walk through them. The first is, what is godliness? What is it? And then, what is the value of godliness? Both those are in verse 7 and 8, which will primarily be what we look at here. Let's read it again. Train yourself for godliness, for bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So what's godliness? Uh, Many Christians would immediately begin to describe or even say the word holiness. We kind of interchange godliness and holiness. Uh, And they're very similar, but they're actually different words uh, in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, Holiness is usually meant uh, to set apart, to devote uh, to be devoted to God, it, it sometimes connotates moral purity. Godliness usually has to do with a godlike morality or a godlike attitude. But these are very similar uh, concepts. We'd be splitting hairs to make a lot of distinction, especially when we have 2 Peter 3 11 to 12, which says, What sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Or uh, the old Reformed catechism that asks this question. And what do the godly reveal their holiness? It's often just very, very similar. But Paul doesn't use the word holiness. He uses the word godliness. And so, what does he mean? Um, Now, if you were to go through and and try to read through every time godly is used in the Bible, which I, I did... In my preparation, you don't really get a good definition of godliness. It doesn't. You don't really. It doesn't really tell you what it is. And so you really have to think about um, what the word conveys. Godly, God-like, gives you an idea of what we're talking about theologically. And then you think back at the beginning of the Bible: Who is the first person who was to be God-like? Adam was to image forth an accurate representation of God. Adam failed to do that and became what? Ungodly. And his offspring after him that he reproduced became ungodly. And what what happens in conversion to someone who's ungodly? They they, uh, they're changed in such a way that they now have the capacity to manifest godliness again that they did not have before because they were stuck in that condition of ungodliness like Adam. And so sanctification is the process by which you are becoming God's image again. You are becoming godly again. Which, by the way, becoming is a, is a creature word. God doesn't become. Uh, In fact, people who teach that God becomes uh, are heretics. They're teaching process theology, that God becomes or evolves or or progresses into something different than what he currently is. That's not true. We uh, progress, we transform, uh, we become, but God is being without becoming and we are the ones who must become something. We must uh, become more godly, or if not, we'll become more ungodly. We must become more human, or else we become less human. We must become more like God, or else we'll become less like God. But becoming is something uh, that that we must focus on. Uh, God just is who He is. Look at Romans 8.29, for example, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, Colossians 1.15 says the image of His Son is the image of the invisible God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. And I love what uh, the Puritan um, Thomas Watson said, and he has a little book on godliness I would highly recommend. He says this, A godly man bears both God's name and his image. Godliness is godlikeness. It is one thing to profess God. It is another thing to resemble Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we all, as Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, so we could say this. A godly person is a more alive person. Um it, to to be ungodly is to be zombie-like, okay? To use a modern kind of concept, not really fully human. That's what ungodliness is. Godliness is fully alive. Uh, Colossians three ten says, "You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator." And so the Christian is week after week, month after month, year after year, disciplining ourselves to become that new self, that better, improved, fully alive self. The Christian is shedding off and breaking free from the original self, the ungodly self, and putting on and becoming this this new self. It's our, our Christian metamorphosis. Uh, Pardon pardon the illustration here, but it's like an ugly caterpillar um, that is coming out of a cocoon into a beautiful free-flying, free-flying, not bound and restricted, uh, a free-flying butterfly. So it's breaking free from the old self, the original sin-enslaved self, shedding the cocoon of the flesh, and becoming more free, and joyous, and happy, and alive. That's what godliness is. That doesn't just sound like rule-keeping, does it? It's not that. So we're disciplining ourselves to become less creaturely and more creatorly. To reflect God's image, which means we must shed off the old image. We must crucify the old self so that we can become the new, better, more joyous, fully alive Self. So, so, when somebody says, I just want to discover myself. It's like, well, what do you, what do you mean by, by that? If you mean discover the old, caterpillar-like, fallen, not free, still enslaved self, that's not really something you want to discover. That's something you want to break free from. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so what is Satan doing? He's trying uh, to steal your humanity. To steal your joy. To steal your life. And Christ says, I've come to restore it to you. To give it in abundance. The devil wants to, uh, we'll use this word, dehumanize you. And the Spirit of God comes to make you fully human. This is why we know that our culture is under the the power of the demonic, because they're finding new and inventing new ways to dehumanize constantly. That's what abortion is. Killing of an unborn is a dehumanizing, a ridding the earth of God's image. transgenderism, feminism, or attempts to remove God-given gender. Uh, The sexual objectification of women on the internet is a dehumanizing. Uh, Young men sitting in front of video games and living vicariously through the video game, not in real life, but in video game world, is a dehumanizing of humanity. And it's all playing into... Uh, the work of the devil who wants to steal your life. And the Spirit of God is on the earth trying to restore life. And give you what God wants to give us in Christ. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to labor for this. This doesn't just fall in your lap. Even if you're a Christian, it's not just falling in your lap. You strive for it. You work for it. He uses the word agonize. And Paul knows this because he does this. He says, I worked harder than any of them. I beat my body and make it my slave. I go through rigors to get godliness. And, and brothers and sisters, so, so must we. And listen, that's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. Because the same Spirit that empowers and transforms us into godly people, it's the same Spirit that gives you desires to want to read your Bible. To want to pray. To want to gather with the church for fellowship and to worship. And to want to put off sin and the old self. The Spirit of God does that in you and it's not burdensome when you're doing what you love. And so it's not burdensome at all and you know and it's really not burdensome for us because we know godliness isn't really about us it's not us it's not about us performing for god or attaining something from god what is godliness according to paul he defined it the chapter before this chapter 3 verse 15 the mystery of godliness is who it's christ he says great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so, church, our our confession is and has always been Christ, the God-man, the God-like man. He is the one who blazed the trail, who climbed the mountain. We follow in His train. That's all we do. And we do it imperfectly. You know, what do we call a person who begins to love all the things that are necessary to attain godliness? And hate the things that hinder? Call that a godly person. That's what godliness is. Now, our text goes on. It says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, it's worth exercising and eating healthy. There's some value there, he he admits. But he says, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's comparing and contrasting an athlete's bodily training and discipline to that of the Christian training for godliness saying the similarity is they're both working, they're both striving, they're both disciplining themselves for a, a goal, for a, a promise, a reward. And he says the athlete is hoping for the promise of a championship, maybe a trophy, a better health, maybe the praise and glory of men. But the Christian is striving and laboring, laboring and disciplining for godliness, for the promise, uh, promises that happen in this life and the life to come. And that's what I want to talk about we have got to get a vision for the rewards of, of godliness in this present life that's Paul's first category and in the life to come um let's l- let me start by saying this do 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 you realize i mean do you really realize that in this present life there are rewards for godliness you know, I think many Christians, without knowing it, actually believe the closer I get to God, the more He's going to hurt me. If I really just fully surrender to Him, you start flinching. When's it coming? Now, it does say in Scripture that those who live a godly life will be persecuted. It's true. But what do you do about all the times you're not being persecuted? Just suffering? this utter misery to walk close to the Lord? Uh, when I read the Old Testament and I see ungodly Israel, they're constantly suffering because of their ungodliness. Not their godliness. It's the ungodliness that brings the suffering. I know in my own life, this, most of the suffering that I've endured is a result of my ungodliness. My bad choices. Not my good ones. I think, I think we could all say the same thing. When I read Proverbs to my kids, and we, and we look at these different Proverbs in the morning at the breakfast table, and, and, and I put before them a wisdom principle. Do I say, okay, aim for this, guys, because it'll, I'm guaranteeing you it's going to make you miserable. You will suffer if you do this. <laughs> I mean, is that how we're teaching the Proverbs? Like, attain this godly life, become this wise person, and you will just, you will hate life. Uh, it will get miserable. Uh, no, we're, we're saying that if you do this, generally speaking, there's going to be a lot of blessings that come in your life. But eternally speaking, it's going to pay out massive. That's, that's how the Proverbs uh, speak to us, and the Father in Proverbs. And, and maybe a helpful illustration, it's like a, a man, let's say he's 90 years old, he's sitting in a park, and he's spent most of his life just sitting in this park every day, he's just watching all the people walk by, different events, all their interactions, all their... Uh, you know, uh, the things they do and the consequences that come from it. And he says, okay, uh, and you ask him, what have you observed? And he goes, okay, generally, here's what I've observed over these years watching thousands of people that a fool's voice invites a beating. Okay? Usually the guy who can't keep his mouth shut and and certain, and and he lets his anger out, that's not going to go well for him. The the person who doesn't work and lays around is going to be poor and homeless most of the time. Um, godliness at work, he might say, it might get you persecuted sometimes, but usually it'll get you a raise. It'll get you a promotion. It'll be a blessing to all your coworkers. Bruce Watke, he's a, a leading scholar in Proverbs. Uh, I think virtually every book or commentary on Proverbs after. Watke has has just kind of drawn off what what he's said. and It it seems like Watke and what he's saying in Proverbs is the same as what Paul's saying to Timothy. Let's take, for example, Proverbs 22.4. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord godliness, is riches and honor and life. So that's two levels. In this present life, Often godliness will bring riches, honor, and life. That's a general promise. But an absolute promise is in the life to come, always godliness will bring riches and honor and life. And notice it says, holds promise or holds value, verse 8 says. Godliness holds promise for the present life and the life to come. And I was thinking about that regarding. Uh, you know, weightlifting. Let's say someone who lifts weights. Um, you take a week off, two weeks off. You're immediately losing value. You're immediately losing what you worked for. All right. You're immediately backtracking uh, when you begin to take. It doesn't hold value. Or you think about uh, great athletes that they spend their teen years into their twenties, into their thirties, and they just keep, you know, climbing. And at some point they hit a peak and it's downhill from there on out. Their body just can't sustain it. They can't hold the value of what they've worked for. It's downhill. Here's what's interesting about godliness. You can just keep going up, 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 up into your 90s and you're still progressing. There's no, there's no down uh, downwardness to to what the godliness gives you. Or, or think about um, even... Let's say a few years ago you put $20,000 in some standard bank account, non-aggressive, just basic bank account, and then you try to draw that out next year. That thing is less value than when you probably put it in there. Uh, our inflation rates, the, the current our currency losing its value, it doesn't hold value. And almost nothing in this world does. But, but Paul says here, godliness holds value in this life and in the life to come. Now, there's another, uh, we won't take the time to read uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, but he argues for godliness, um, that if you have it and it's increasing, that the rewards are coming. And I like the word increasing, because this is how it works. You attain a little bit of godliness, and then you go, wait a second, this is better than ungodliness. Uh, when you taste the goodness of a clean conscience, you realize, well, this is better than guilt and shame. Or or when you taste the goodness of joy in the Lord, then you go, joy in the Lord, fleeting pleasures of sin, the happiness the world can provide, joy in the Lord is better. Or when you experience peace and contentment, you begin to hate and put to death worry and fear and anxiety When you give generously, you go, wait a second, it is better to give than to receive. When you experience what God gives, even the finest delicacies and pleasures of the world don't seem as good. There are real, physical, emotional, mental, psychological, uh, relational benefits to godliness. So when he says it benefits you, in every way, in this life, that doesn't mean we're free from all anxieties or all fears or all discomfort, uh, but it does mean you'll avoid a lot of it. Godliness does pay in this life. And I know we always want to think of the exception. You know, well, my issues are genetic. Okay, let's say they are. I mean, every, every good doctor that I've heard uh, would say good eating, exercise, sleep, healthy relationships, good work-rest balance, uh, positive uh, thoughts and, and, and actions that bless and serve others. Like All these things bring emotional benefits. Usually, almost all the time, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life. If that's true, what's the best gift I could give to myself? To even uh, my central nervous system. Godliness. What's the best gift I could give to my wife? A more godly husband. What's the best gift I could give to my children? A godlier father. What's the best gift I could give to you as a church? A godlier pastor. What's the best gift I could give to the world? And someone might say, well, the gospel. But look, if I'm godly, I'll give the gospel to the world. I'll give them the gospel as word and I'll demonstrate it with deed. Godliness is what we need in this present life. And the life to come. It holds promise for the life to come. Look, my job as a preacher, a doctor can tell you a lot of the things I just told you especially if they're a Christian doctor. But a preacher, I'm supposed to get up here and look kind of foolish pointing at this next one. In the life to come, these things will pay out. Eternity, 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 eternity. Think further ahead. With everything you're doing, think further ahead. Think past this life. What will it do for you, what you're enduring and doing right now? How will it pay out? That's my job. I have to remind you of that. I have to say how you treat the youngest member of your family in their difficult moments. If you do it with godliness, you won't lose your reward. I know your coworkers don't ask for your godliness, but they need it, and it'll pay off eternally. I plead with you, church, before you do anything in the morning, before you work, before you care for your children, shut yourself away with God. You will not lose your reward. Brothers and sisters, I know the days feel very long. But our lives are really short. Don't waste it. Listen, I want to let Charles Spurgeon speak to us on this for a moment. He, He was in a sermon talking about the eternal benefits of godliness and he said this. The godly man will die as others die, but his death will be very different in its essence and meaning. He will pass gently out of this world into the world to come, And then he will begin to realize the promise in which godliness gave him. For he will enter then, nay, he has entered now into eternal life. The Christian's life shall never be destroyed. For Christ said, because I live, you shall live also. Christians, fear not. For eternal youth will be to you and to those who wear the unfading crown of glory. And then listen to the, the Prince of Preachers 19th century poetic style uh, in which he says what he's about to say here. The sun shall become black as coal. The, the moon shall fall under its beams never to be seen. The stars shall fall like withered figs. Even this earth, which we call stable, shall with yonder heavens be rolled up like a vestment that is worn out shall be laid aside among the things that were, but are not. Everything which can be seen will fade away. But the believer will live forever. Because his God is a living God. Every godly soul in the moment of death will begin to enjoy his eternal life in the company of Christ, in the presence of God, in the society of disembodied spirits and holy angels. Spurgeon Uh, is right, because Paul says, what? Absent from the body, and before he can almost get that out of his mouth, he says what? Present with the Lord. It's saying that by time the eyes close on this earth, they are opened in heaven. By time the the plane boards, it's already reached its destination. Guys, we are so, I know you join me in this, so tired of your passionate, or passionless soul that doesn't long for all the things it should long for. You know what? You'll get a new one of those. And this body that's often very difficult to live in, you'll get a new one of those too. These things are so glorious. I mean, I I took something Spurgeon said and and then I put my own thoughts to it and, and, and let me begin to describe this even more. To the godly. Kings and rulers will be your closest friends. Since you will be ruling with them, your heads will wear a crown. Your hands will have palms of triumph. You shall have glorious rank and the background and foreground. Songs of angels. Hol- the holiest and best of men redeemed by Christ shall commune with you. You shall have fellowship with God unbroken. And the unspeakable joy of face-to-face Fellowship with Him. Boredom. You'll never have. Because God will give you suitable occupations. I don't know uh, what you will do in heaven for work, but it is written, quote, they shall see my face and His servant shall serve Him. You will not be happy eternally without occupation or work for Him. Joy-producing work will be given to you, tailor fit to your perfect capacities. And you shall have rest to go with your work. And by the way, your work will not feel like work in the way that we think of work now. Sweat and toil and anxiety and fear and worry. Uh, But all your desires will be satisfied. Consummated. Your expectations fulfilled. And think about this, brothers and sisters. The Father will be your portion the Spirit, your friend, the Son, your older brother. For Jesus said, enter into the joy of your Master. And this and infinitely more will be yours forever and ever without fear of ever losing it or dread of dying in the midst of it. He promised us. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined the things that God has prepared for those who... Love Him. So mark it down. Those whom He justifies, He glorifies. All this will be yours. And more. Because He promised. And the promise goes with godliness. If you have godliness, all His promises are yes and amen. There will be no joy or honor or rest or peace in which He will withhold from the godly. To the godly, He has promised it all. Kingdoms. And He's too trustworthy to retract His promise or leave it unfulfilled. He's too wise to make hasty promises. He's too powerful to be unable to fulfill His promises. Scripture says He has said and will He not do it? That's why we strive. That's why you labor. That's why you wake up early. That's why you deny self. That's why you don't buy into the lies of the world that tell you what they're offering is better than what He's offering. Because He promises. And you can trust His promises for their benefits now and for their future and eternal benefits. That's what verse 10 says. This is why we have rested our hope in the living God. Amen? Let's go to the table. Um, Let me ask just, who, who is this table for? Is it for those who are perfectly godly? Uh, Or is it not for those who understand how ungodly we are and have been, but we believe there is one who is godly, and he laid down his life for us, and he came to this earth to save us and to make us like him. Uh, Church, if you have professed Christ, believed in the gospel, uh, been baptized in his name, please come take this supper rejoice at this table. Uh, The Lord is doing good in you and will continue to do good through you. Uh, Let's come to the table rejoicing. If you will be refraining, I'll I'll just say uh, in your bulletin on page two are some meaningful prayers uh, that you can pray in this time. And uh, myself and Pastor Kent are available to also talk uh, about any questions you may have regarding Christ, your salvation, your soul to pray for you. Uh, Please see us afterward if you need it. Let's pray. Father, Father, Lord, our minds are just so limited in what we can comprehend. All we know are these fallen bodies. All we know are just constant attacks from the enemy. The lures of this evil world. Short-lived pleasures and joys. Joy mixed with sorrow. We know nothing of eternal life in the fullest sense. We don't know what it's like to truly walk with You and not stumble and fall away at any point. But Lord, we long for it. We long for it, Lord. And we pray that even in these bodies, even in this this pilgrimage into heaven, that You would increase our desires for godliness. Lord, for the sake of our own joy in You, for the sake of others, but most of all, Lord, that we would give a more accurate image to this world of what You're like and how we live and move and talk and speak and prioritize. So Lord, help us with these things. For Your name's sake, we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.